friends, it is my pleasure to welcome you here this evening to listen to the Sadar Patel Memorial Lectures for the year 1974 to be delivered by this Mr. P. N. Hakkar. The Sadar Patel Memorial Lectures were instituted in the year 1955 and they commemorate the name of Sadar Vallabhai Patel, the first Minister for Information and Broadcasting of Free India. The object of this series of lectures is to bring a distinguished personality who will present the fruits of his wisdom and of his reflection to an all India audience. During the last two decades, we have had persons of great distinction which AIR have had the pleasure of presenting. The series was inaugurated by Rajaji himself and since then we have had such personalities as the late Professor J.B.S. Holden, Dr. K.S. Krishnan and Dr. Varya Elwin to speak. Mr. P. N. Haksar had his early education in Allahabad and after that he was at the London School of e Economics. Thereafter, he was called to the bar. After practicing for a short while back in Allahabad, he joined a government service, I suppose rather late, in 1947. Since then, he has held important, varied and distinguished positions in the diplomatic and administrative life of India. He has been India's High Commissioner in, in Nigeria, and in the United Kingdom. He has served on international commissions such as the Neutral Nations Repatriation Commission in Korea. He has also been connected with such delicate matters and intricate matters this as the Space Commission and the recording. Atomic Energy Commission both at the national and at the international plane. Most important of all, he has been the principal private secretary to the Prime Minister for several years. He speaks then from inside knowledge about his subject, which is the evolution of foreign policy in India. Mr. Haksar. Mr. Director General, of All India Radio, Mr. Chatterjee, and ladies and gentlemen. I do not uh, wish to begin by indulging myself in a mood of self-depreciation, but I would like to say in all humility that I am full of trepidations in being one in a series of men of very high distinction who have spoken in the Sadar Patel Memorial series of lectures. I have a feeling that uh, I am perhaps, when compared to them, a most unlikely person to be called upon to speak and to be honored thus. Something comes to my mind, this is All India Radio, but please do not misunderstand the comparison between me and Kalidas is quite coincidental. But I do share his doubts and hesitations when he began composing the great epic Raghuvansh Mahakavya. And to those who might not be familiar, I might remind them of his introduction when he said 
क्वसूर्य प्रभवो वंश क्वच्चाल्प विषयामती तिथीर्षु दुस्तरम मोहात उदुपेनास्मी सागरम compared to the great task of describing the valor the greatness of, of raghuvansh my knowledge and wisdom is meager and i might become just as ridiculous as a mere dwarf trying to reach up to catch a fruit hanging by a tall tree anyhow there is no escape and i shall therefore seek your indulgence while i on my part try to do my best sadar patel to whose memory these series of lectures are dedicated was one of the most remarkable of persons thrown up by the vast turbulence which went into the making of the struggle of the people of india for their freedom he was an integrative force an organizing genius during the period of that struggle and afterwards indeed as one contemplates the scene of history of our national struggle one is struck by a remarkable phenomenon of men of diverse moods diverse sensibilities diverse talent and diverse temperament but of all men of great distinction did not allow their diversities to come in the way to working together for a great purpose subordinating their individuality often their points of view to the test a simple test namely the expression of their individual differences might impair the pursuit of the single purpose of freeing this country it was indeed a very remarkable achievement of such widely divergent men siyadas pandit motilal nehru abul kalam azad and jawalal nehru and jawalal nehru in his turn and sardar vallabhai patel i do not mean to exhaust the list but merely to illustrate the situation and therefore i am if i may so somewhat saddened that in our contemporary times when the tasks which confront our country are no less vital that in our times we should see that perhaps lesser men and we are perhaps lesser men who seek to become the carriers of the gospel of each of our great men trying to convert them as if they were mere factional leaders this thought occurred to me and i thought i should express it because i have no doubt at all that this was not so they were not factional leaders they were great men in their own right each as i said with different mood and different sensibility and different talent but then i suppose in human affairs and human history it has often happened 
and I'm sure it will happen in the future as it has happened in the past. When the impulse of a great vision and the message of great men, when they fall into the hands of lesser apostles, tend to get vulgarized. This is One of the most dramatic pictures which I have carried in my mind is a picture, let us say, of Jesus Christ on the cross, full of compassion with his head bent. And I have compared that picture of compassion, of blood dripping, of nakedness, of that crucifixion and martyrdom with the scepters and crowns and regalias of kings and prelates and priests. And I do not think that that is, constitutes an improvement on the message which was meant to be conveyed. Be that as it may, I have to come back to the main theme which we have assembled here to discuss. And in introducing this theme, I might begin by saying something obvious to the learned and even to those who are not so learned. But it has been my experience for what it is worth that new truths and new visions are rare to find and very often in human affairs what needs, what needs to be done is to state the obvious because the obvious being right in front of us tends to be forgotten. And the first obvious proposition is that it is no use talking of foreign policy as if it is something hanging in midair by itself. There can be no foreign policy sensibly or effectively or otherwise pursued by a country without, being, without that country being sovereign and independent. Sovereignty and independence are indispensable to the conduct of foreign policy of any nation. Sadar Vallabhai Patel, whose life and work only marginally dealt with foreign policy, but nevertheless Sardar Patel's life and work contributed a substantial measure in, make, in making it possible for India to having a foreign policy. For obviously, his life and work was dedicated to making India sovereign and independent. And even if you are sovereign and independent, you can have no foreign policy in essence and substance. If that foreign policy is not sustained by a country united and cohesive. And Sardar Patel, through his life and work, made India united and cohesive. And it is not enough to be merely united and cohesive. because foreign policy deals with protection, advancement of a, of a country's interest. This is a part of a common cliché that foreign policy is somewhere concerned with protecting, advancing, promoting country's interest. But how do you define interest? From where do you get the definition of this interest? Is it something which you concoct this is out of nothing? Radio radio, or is it something which is secreted through the interstices of the society, of the country to which one belongs? And even if you were to define those interests, question always arises, are they mutable? Are they subject to laws of change? Are they transcendental, independent variables? independent of time and space. And even if you succeed in defining your interests, the means and methods you ad adopt in promoting your interests inevitably brings you, inevitably brings you into contact with the interests of other countries with whom 
you wish to establish relationship of one sort of another. And therefore, foreign policy's pursuit involves inevitably not merely promotion of your own interests as you conceive them to be, but it involves an interrelationship, an interaction between your interests and of country A, your interests and of country B. But then, is the foreign policy of a country a sum total, an arithmetic sum of totality of your relationship with hundred odd countries? Obviously it is not. Because definition of interests, interaction of those interests, interaction of means of propagating those interests, protecting those interests, advancing those interests, brings you with other countries. And the countries do not exist in vacuum. They exist in time and place. In other words, they have a history. They have a tradition. They have a history and they have a tradition of looking, defining their own interests. And therefore, while sovereignty and independence, unity and cohesion of a country are essential elements before you even begin to tackle the problem of foreign policy, and a very important input into the making of foreign policy, any foreign policy, good, bad or indifferent, successful or failure, is, if I may say so, some deep knowledge, insight about the inwardness of the processes of history, some knowledge about history itself, apart from the processes which go to make it. But then it is easier said than done. What then is history? And I do not know whether historians are agreed in answering the question, what is history? And being not a historian, I cannot enter into the controversy with the confidence of an academic historian. But for my purpose, I would say, for my part, in order to enable me to analyze foreign policies and to trace the evolution of the foreign policy of our own country to say, history to me, and I use this word as a hypothesis, one can demolish it, history to me is mere interaction between forces of continuity and forces of change. By no means an original thought, it has been stated in those terms by many historians. Above all, Jawaharlal Nehru made a whole speech, Azad Memorial speech, on continuity and change in Indian history. But I would beg of you to accept it as a working hypothesis, that in the absence of any more profound definition of history, history is interaction between factors of continuity this and factors of change. Radio and as I say this, a picture comes to my mind it, I have always carried it with me. I can't remember from where I derived it, but so strongly etched on my mind that as I close my eyes, I can see its every detail. It's a picture of a year, of a day in a year, in the month of May. The year was 1910. And the day was the day of funeral of King Edward. And the picture is a picture of vast assembly, a resplendent assembly of crowned heads of Europe and indeed the royalty of the world. That was 1910. Who were there? Accompanying the funeral cottage. King George V, obviously, the heir to the throne. The most dramatic and picturesque figure was that of King Wilhelm II, the Kaiser. But he was not alone. There was King Hakon of Norway, King of Denmark. There was King of Bulgaria, who had an amusing habit of calling himself the Tsar, which didn't endear him to other Tsar. 
And the king of Bulgaria had another queer habit of having in his possession in his wardrobe a Byzantium robe of the emperor which he had bought from a theatrical costume dealer. <laughs> but there was king of Bulgaria. This is all there was the Archduke Ferdinand of Austro-Hungarian Empire. There was the King Alfonso of Spain, King Manuel of Portugal, King of Belgians, and minor royalties representing the King of Italy, Duke Aosta, if I remember correctly. There was Prince Sai of China. There were the representatives of the Tsarist of the Tsar. There was the Khedive, representative of Khedive of Egypt. There were minor princelings and princes of Baden, of Württemberg, of Hanover. Forty-nine of them, a glittering show, another world. 1910, today is 1974, on the eve of 1975. And how the picture has changed. Why? It's an annoying question. But is it relevant for the conduct of international affairs? Because during this time, men of more than ordinary intelligence wear a helm of affairs. I don't think any of the emperors and kings were known to be cretins. They were clever men. The prime ministers were clever, clever men. Their counselors were clever and able men. Not to speak of the foreign ministers, who must have been by definition clever and able men. This is All India Radio Archives recording. And yet all this cleverness and all its ability apparently was not enough to save the picture of 1910 from being destroyed. So that now we can see, by grace of God, if you believe in God or otherwise, Tsarist Empire is no more. The Habsburgs are finished. So are the Ottoman Turks, whose representative was also present at the funeral. And last but not least, the British Empire, which in my young days was part of nature is no more. In 1910, something else happened. Uh, two books appeared. One was by Norman Angel, called The Great Illusion. He too was man of more than ordinary intelligence. And while he was proceeding to gain daily new converts, to the ideas he had established to his own satisfaction that war just cannot, is not on. Because any sensible man would see it cannot achieve anything. Yet as his counterfoil, there was someone in 1910 writing a book, Prince General von Bernhardi, a book which was published a year later in 1911. It was a book called the Germany's Next War. And so, despite the intelligence this is all India Radio which went into the making of the foreign policy of the Tsars, the Habsburgs, of France, of Germany, of Britain, the net result of that foreign policy which is meant to protect your interests, has been that those interests as they defined it, not as I defined them, they are not seen to be protected. Whole systems have vanished, empires have vanished, illusions, the great illusion turned out to be a grand illusion. 
and some queer sort of way, Prince General von Bernhardi's book, The Germany's Next War, had to prove to be true a few years hence. Question is, why did it happen? It happened because those who were in charge of conduct of international relations were not aware of apparently simple facts about this century of ours, and I speak only about this century, simple fact that the factors of continuity and factors of change constitute a system of interactions and not a stable equilibrium. The Ottoman Turks appear strong and powerful, yet everyone knew that court of Abdul Hamid II and his successors was venal. And those who were sway, came under the sway of the empire were restless and restive. This is All India Radio. And that was true of the Tsarist Empire, and even more dramatically true of the Otto, of the Habsburgs. But they little knew that minor fries, the Czechs, and the Slavs, the Serbians, and the Croatians, the Poles, and others were restless. And whenever foreign policy or those who deal with foreign policy or seek to conceptualize foreign policy do not take into account in the 20th century and particularly in this latter half of 20th century, the last quarter century, the passions, emotions which move human beings are bound to come to grief sooner or later. Question often is whether it is a grief suffered in silence or a grief in company of one's friends. So in the making of foreign policy, not only sovereignty and independence and unity of country are important factors. We can find examples of how nations seemingly sovereign and independent and trying to pretend that they were factors in international affairs were pitifully the object of other people's policies rather being a subject matter of history or being instruments of fashioning their own destiny. To my mind one of the examples is that of the great Manchu Empire from 1795 this to 1912. The Manchus had all the manners and accents of being sovereign, and manners and accents having a semblance of reality by the cow tying which was done by foreigners. But the fact of the matter is that they were not subject matter of foreign policy. Although there were gestures made grand gestures, often fascinating gestures made. And I remember a gesture which the Chinese made in 1816. The representative of proud Britain, Lord Amherst, arrived in Peking. He waited. He didn't present his credentials. He went back because Lord Amherst was not recognized. And the people of China might have come to the conclusion quite erroneous though, that here was China's sovereign independence sending back an ambassador. Bad manners do not make good diplomacy. It is interesting to note that the Chinese never had a foreign office until 1861. Prior to that period, the affairs of foreigners, whether they were missionaries or traders, were dealt with by a delightfully Chinese institution called the governance, Hall of, for the governance of barbarians. And yet we all know that the Manchus were decaying a decadent lot and they ceased to be in 1912 when a young Manchu prince 
finished. And thereafter, we know that China went through great travail and could never be a factor of international affairs until they emerged triumphant as a unified national sovereign state. And what is true of China is true of this Ottoman Turks. There are many instances how seemingly sovereign Ottoman Turkish Empire, especially in the days of Abdul Hamid II, was mean, venal. One of the, nowadays one talks a great deal about oil politics and oil and the Arabs. And yet on the scene at the court of Abdul Hamid appeared an adventurer, an Armenian adventurer called Gulbenkian. And this man, Gulbenkian, a most dramatic figure, if there was one, for almost nothing obtained thousands of miles of concession in oil. At the same time, another man called Darcy, sitting in London, who never went out of London, obtained concessions in Persia. Anyhow, I've said enough to demonstrate that countries, in order to have a foreign policy, must be truly sovereign and truly independent, truly cohesive, so that when people speak, the representatives, the diplomats representing that country speak, they speak with the voice of that country. Because while we in India are varied and diverse, and for purposes of our domestic preoccupations, it is nice to have this richness and diversity. It is the unfortunate habit of foreigners to treat us as Indians. And therefore, we are driven to be Indians. And therefore, we have to speak about India. And we do not speak about foreign policy interests of the constituent elements of India. Although there are feelings in some parts of India that they could conduct their foreign policy. Be that as it may, I now come if you grant me the validity of what I am saying about some this conceptual framework of history, some tentative hypothesis of historical processes and how they occur. And as I have dramatically illustrated to you, how in the course of 65 years, we are not talking of prehistory, we are not talking of millennia which has gone before, we are talking of 65 years, which is part of our own life. Things have changed, and how the picture which I presented to you of King Edward's funeral has changed. Now it is not surprising that in conceptualizing India's foreign policy, one may agree or disagree with that foreign policy. But the fact remains, which is incontrovertible and which cannot be controverted and contested, that in order to understand the foreign policy, one has to understand all the complicated thought processes, personalities, values, ideas of one man, at least, who decisively contributed to making of India's foreign policy. And that obviously is Jawaharlal Nehru. And in saying so, I do not wish to attach any value judgment about goodness or badness, rightness or wrongness, greatness or otherwise, but merely record the fact that if one reads the total literature on foreign policy of India, its evolution, there is no other single person who has contributed so much to conceptualizing it, to the making of it, and naturally, for the first 17 years of independence, being responsible for it in one way or another. What then are the elements which go, which went into the making of a foreign policy? Obviously, nations, like individuals, live by the light of their experience. This is All India Radio Archives recording. There is no nation which is tabula rasa. Every nation is condemned with history of its own. And that ex the experience, what is experienced to an individual, is the historical tradition, the heritage of a country. And is it then surprising that Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru should have spent so much of his time in answering simple question to himself, what is India itself? Because obviously, a foreign policy does not hang in midair, 
it must be rooted in the soil of the country if it is, has to durability and validity. And you cannot have it rooted in the soil of a country unless you understand what the soil is, not merely from the point of view of soil chemistry, but in the wider sense of our history, of our tradition, of what makes us tick. And uh, there must be something which makes us tick. And I am reminded of uh, a very remarkable a piece by Iqbal, which is to the following effect. Yunano Misra Ruma, Yunano Misra Ruma, Sab Mit Gaye Jahan Se. Ab tak magar hai baqi, ab tak magar hai baqi, namo nishan hamara. Kuch baat hai, कि हस्ती मिट्टी नहीं हमारी कुछ बात है कि हस्ती मिट्टी नहीं हमारी सदियों से रहा है दुश्मन दौरों जहां हमारा दिस इज द पोइटिक सेंसिबिलिटी ऑफ इकबाल एक्टिंग अपॉन द मिस्ट्री ऑफ इंडियाज हिस्ट्री ए मिस्ट्री टू व्हिच जवाहरलाल नेहरू डिवोटेड ए गुड पार्ट ऑफ हिज लाइफ इन अनरेवलिंग but whatever may be that, we have a long experience, a continuity in our history which is not to be found in Rome or Misr or Greece. And it is somehow affects our thinking, our attitudes, our outlooks. And it must have affected the outlook, the attitude of Jawaharlal Nehru who, as I said, contributed so much to the conceptualizing of the foreign policy of India, whether it was good or bad. And one of the essential parts of the latter-day history, one of the big experiences of that history, was the history that this country of ours, about which we boast about, of being a proud inheritor of great and glorious civilization that this, hist that this country of ours ceased to be in charge of its own destiny. And very often it is expressed as a growth of awareness of our slavery and its reaction. In its crude form, it is expressed as a reaction of people to foreign domination. Our attitudes to foreign domination to racial discrimination, our attitude towards what is called the phenomenon of imperialism as a system and not a people. I think this is anybody, anyone who wishes to understand, delve into motivating factors of India's history must take this into account that for a very long stretch of time it will remain one of the principal motivating forces in, as an input into our foreign policy, in fashioning of our relations with our countries, our reaction to men and events, our reaction to systems. But side by side there is a long-term thing. This country of ours has been through ups and downs, great vicissitudes, triumphs and defeats, glories and humiliation. And out of that has emerged a historical memory, which is in thousand and one ways is shared by the humblest, the most uneducated and illiterate of our people. And it is a feeling that what we call truth and in the name of which we are prepared to kill someone is not a monochromatic phenomenon. That truth may be, whether it is religious or otherwise, is a kind of series of approximations one makes to knowledge. It's a kind of spectrum 
where one color merges into another, from infrared to ultraviolet. I suggest that if you go and examine and ask our people, that is the kind of response you will get about truth. And it is part of a pantheistic tradition, somewhat akin to the Greek pantheon. And it is not accidental that one of the earlier writers in Greece, Xenophon, remarked about relativity of things. And he said, relativity of conceptions, he said. He said, if you ask the Ethiopians what their gods are like, they will reply that our gods are black and have snub noses. And if you ask the Thracians what their gods are like, they will say their, go their gods have green eyes and red hair. From which Xenophon went out to conclude that if cows and horses could draw the images of their gods, they would be like cows and horses. Of course, Greeks expressed themselves at great length. Until recent years, in earlier times, we expressed ourselves somewhat succinctly. And the corresponding thing in Indian tradition is very simple. Jaki rahi bhavana jaisi, prabhu murat tindekhi taisi. A man's image of God is in terms of his own predilections, rather like the concept of Xenophon. But of course, in learned audiences, Greeks always make greater impact uh, than uh, common and garden sayings about whose author one does not know which, but which form part of the wisdom of the people of this country. It is out of this relativity which is fundamental to Indian thinking, out of which born even after advent of Islam, the first intimations of synthesis of what we call composite culture, of mingling together of things, is an essence of substance of Indian civilizational processes, of admitting diversity as a fact, of differences of outlook as a fact, so that it is not worthwhile fighting for it and dying for it. Is it then surprising that one regards the great moment of Indian history, such, uh, such things which are non-Western, uh, like Ashoka's renunciation of war after conquest of Kalinga? and that we regard Ashoka as great, or we regard Akbar as great, because he is a reconciler. He is not propounder, oracular propounder of the ultimate truth. He, we are not inheritors of the tradition in India, of what is called revealed knowledge, so that who do not share in it are condemned to eternal perdition. This is inevitable psychology with which India, and above all, Mr. Nehru, and he's talked often about it, thought it was that conceptual framework, right or wrong, that he thought about it. Things, external phenomena. Uh, phenomena of India, its diversity, and what to do with it. And indeed, the diversity of the world, which was not of our making, but with which we had to fashion our relations. And so, doctrines of peaceful coexistence, of live and let live, which are rooted in the soil, in the tradition of Indian thought and this thinking, came naturally to us. Just as the total experience of being subjected to foreign domination burnt itself into our consciousness or even subconsciousness. And since nobody has given us an assurance that concepts of dominance have vanished from the face of the earth, until then, naturally, we have to regard and approach our international relations to ensure for ourselves 
that the relationships are as nearly equal as possible. In a wider frame of peaceful coexistence, of non-interference in internal affairs, of equality, of mutual benefit, and all that goes into the definition of peaceful coexistence. But that is obviously not enough, because foreign policies have a outer garb and an inner reality. There is no country which does not seek to cast its foreign policy in some ideological mold. Only thing is that if you are perceptive enough to think about the reality, that is to say, the substance around which the ideology provides the garb, then one would be able to distinguish between the form and substance, the outward appearance and inner reality. But whatever the outward garb, this is all the perceptiveness in conceptualizing our foreign policy, lies basically in the acuteness with which you perceive not the flags under which people march, but the factors which are causing change in our contemporary world. And I should like to suggest that any foreign policy in the world of today which does not take into account the most remarkable phenomenon of our contemporary times is bound to come to grief. As I have shown, the foreign policies have come to grief even though pursued by men of high intelligence. And what is that factor? That factor is that unlike in 18th, 19th, 7th centuries, and professional diplomats know it to their cost, there is a strange intrusion into the neatness and logically constructed structures of foreign policy. There's an intrusion of vast mass of human beings. And I submit that one could, if one were inclined to write a thesis, the contemporary failures of foreign policy are failures of taking, failing to take into account this important factor of 20th century and of contemporary times, so that affairs of mice and men go awry. Man's consciousness, the explosion of man's consciousness, to my point, to my way of looking at things, is far more dramatic in this half of century and is going to be even more dramatic in the coming years to come than even the more dramatic explosions of science and technology of which the most dramatic thing is the landing of man on the moon. And Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru was acutely aware of the intrusion of the new factor in international affairs, the intrusion of man's consciousness. It was there even earlier. I have with me a very interesting quotation more not from a wide-eyed philosopher or a calm academic contemplating human affairs, but I have here a remark by a very remarkable German general contemplating the scene after the great battle of Marne which the Allied had almost lost, but miraculously won. And General Crook, representing the German armies, given to 
German propensity for philosophy observed thus the reason that transcends all others was the extraordinary and peculiar aptitude of the French soldier to recover quickly. That men will let themselves be killed where they stand, that is well-known thing and counted on in every plan of battle. But that men who have retreated for ten days, sleeping on the ground and half dead with fatigue, should be able to take up their rifles an attack when the bugle sounds is a thing upon which we never counted. It was a possibility not studied in our war academy. Maybe I am congenitally incapable of bowing my head before the great and mighty citadels of intellect. But how can I, when I observe the scene of history, when men who were advertised their great talent came to grief. And have I not observed in our contemporary times that men who were supposed to be part of the fixed assets of this universe suddenly disappear overnight? From the 14th century until the other day, Portugal, under varying vicissitudes, but the last of him, Mother Salazar and his successor, was a fixed point of the universe of Britain's foreign policy. Why did he disappear? I take it because the same kind of reason which Crook observed, that how men behave cannot be computerized. And this is where computers also go wrong. And this was, if this was true, or the Battle of the Marne, when somehow patriotism was still a very dominant factor and men were moved, then I suggest that now, as we come to the actual conduct of our foreign affairs, if we do not take into account the passion, the fantasy of millions and millions upon people, we are not likely to go very right. I hope that tomorrow when we resume, I shall be able to descend from the realm of philosophy and speculation to the realm of hard facts of life. Thank you.